And for the rest of us, we're going to be in the book of Exodus, chapter 11. We're going to cover some ground today, all the way through, uh, midway through chapter 13. So find your way to the beginning of the Bible, second book of the Bible, Exodus, chapter 11. Before we dive in, these five words, Oh, say, can you see? Setting aside any current political opinions, those five words bring to mind a song that we sing uh, that highlights how our nation's freedom was won through sacrifice. Uh, Part of being an American is remembering and appreciating the freedom we have and not forgetting how it was won. We've got holidays like Memorial Day, Fourth of July, Veterans Day, uh, and traditions like singing the anthem uh, before major events to reinforce in us an identity that we are a people who have freedom because of others' sacrifice. Now, over the last few weeks, we've been making our way through the book of Exodus. God's people were in a foreign land, living a miserable life of slave labor and under the menacing threat of a king that would do anything to hold power. But God promised that he'd free his people and bring them to a new land, We've seen God send plague after plague, yet the Egyptian king, Pharaoh, he wouldn't budge. Today, we see the last one of those plagues in what is famously called the Passover. Our passage today is one of the most important in the entire book of Exodus. And it's not just important for this book. It has effects throughout the entire Old Testament, well into the New Testament, all the way to our day today, so much so that if you go home and you look at your wall calendar, you might see the words Passover starting yesterday. We're in Exodus 11, verses 13 to 16, and we'll hear the story of how God decisively liberates his people through sacrifice. It's a liberation by God for his people through sacrifice. God's the one that does the liberation. He's got the power, he's got the plan, and he executes. It's his people that benefit, those who trust, believe, and obey him, but it takes sacrifice. It's not easy. It's not painless. God liberates his people through sacrifice, and we'll look at it through three angles. A story to remember, an identity to spread, and a paradigm to anticipate. A story to remember, an identity to spread, and a paradigm to anticipate. So let's pray before we open up God's word. Father, we come to you again today, and we say we need you, and we want to hear what you have to say through your word. So give us a heart that's ready to receive what you have to say. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray this. Amen. God liberates his people through sacrifice. Now let's look at the first way. It's a story to remember. The Passover is a story to remember. Now chapter 10 ends with Moses likely flabbergasted before Pharaoh, the stubborn king. Pharaoh had just experienced nine plagues that devastated his land clearly showing that God is is supremely powerful, and yet he refuses to let God's people go. So Moses warns Pharaoh in chapter 11, verse 4. Let's pick it up. 
This is what God said to Moses and what he told to Pharaoh. Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. The last plague will be the straw that broke the camel's back. In the past, Pharaoh negotiated, but this time around, he doesn't even say a word. The stage is set for this last tragic plague, but chapter 12 doesn't begin with it. Instead, it begins with a set of instructions from God. This plague was going to be different. So let's pick it up in chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, now skip down to verse 3, Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Now skip down to verse 6. And you shall keep it, now that's the lamb, until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. Now go down to halfway through verse 11. And you shall eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you and on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The last plague would require God's people to believe him and obey him. The people had to slaughter a lamb per family, take that lamb's blood, put it on the doorposts of their house, and then they're supposed to follow some very specific instructions to cook it. They're supposed to roast the lamb whole with none of its bones broken or separated, and then eat it in a way they're ready to go, in haste. 
Well, in verse 21 to 27, Moses and Aaron take these instructions. They just got it from God. They go and pass it on to the leaders of Israel. And then the leaders of Israel pass it on to the people so that in verse 28, we see the people respond. Then the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. The people of Israel do exactly the opposite thing than what Pharaoh did. They hear God, they listen, they believe, they trust, and they obey him. Well, let's see how the Passover story ends. This is verses 29 to 41. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night, and he said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders, The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children, a mixed multitude also went up with went up with them and very much livestock both flocks and herds and they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt for it was not leaven because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years at the end of 430 years on that very day all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. God's Passover and the 10th plague was life and death, joy and sorrow, liberation and devastation. The 10th plague was God's judgment on all people, Israel and Egyptian alike. But God provides a legitimate way to fulfill his very own judgment through a substitute. God's judgment would pass over anyone who had a lamb's blood on their doorposts. The lamb's blood represents death. The death God required in the tenth plague would be fulfilled through the death of a lamb. Earlier in the book of Exodus, this is in chapter 4, God describes his people collectively as his first born son. God saves his firstborn son Israel from death through the blood of lambs. Lambs killed so that people can live. But averting death isn't enough. 
God delivers his firstborn son, Israel, from slavery through the death of Egypt's firstborn. It's only after God enacts the tenth plague over all of Egypt that Pharaoh decides to let the people go free. Egypt's firstborn killed leads to God's firstborn set free. The moment of tragedy for one people is the moment of liberation for another. God's mercy and justice, his love and his wrath meet at the Passover. God liberates his people from death through the sacrifice of a lamb's blood, and God liberates his people from slavery through the sacrifice of Egypt's firstborn. God passes over and he sets free because of a substitute. This is what substitutionary atonement means. A substitute taking your place and paying the ultimate penalty, death for the ultimate wrong, sin against God. By the end, Pharaoh and all the Egyptians demand that God's people leave, and they leave now. In fact, God's people had already asked the Egyptians for their silver and gold, of which the Egyptians just kind of freely gave. And here, the Egyptians, they don't want their stuff back. They just want these people out. So God's people quickly grab up all their stuff, their family, their animals, and they run out the front door of Egypt in full freedom. For the first time in 430 years, they were, they were finally free. Passover is one of the most remarkable stories to remember. And second, the Passover was an identity to spread. For God's people, the Passover became a watershed moment. Of course, it was huge for the original folks who were in Egypt. They just went from slavery to freedom. But God wanted future generations, especially as they settled into God's promised land, to identify with the Passover. The Passover was an identity to spread. God wants his people to embrace where they came from, why they exist, and, and who they live for. It was meant to give them affections and gratitude, purpose and direction, hope and peace. The Passover, again, was an identity to spread. So God institutes specially crafted reoccurring traditions. So in our passage, God, he institutes a tradition. He assumes that their kids are going to ask about that tradition. And then he explains the deeper meaning of that tradition. See if you can catch it. For example, God helps his people spread an identity of being liberated people for generations to come by instituting an annual meal that reenacts the Passover. Look at chapter 12, verse 24. Chapter 12, verse 24. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he has passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. Or scan down to chapter 13, verse 5. 
where God helps his people embrace being liberated people for generations to come by establishing a week-long national holiday called a Feast of Unleavened Bread. Leaven is an ingredient that helps dough rise like yeast. So look at verse 5. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Look down to verse 8. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Now jump down to chapter 13, verse 11. God helps his people spread an identity of being liberated for generations to come by dedicating the firstborn son and animal in each family. Here's verse 11. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens a womb. And look at verse uh, 14. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. As the people settle into the promised land, these reoccurring traditions, rhythms, and celebrations would spread an identity of being liberated through sacrifices for generations to come. Each of these traditions were specially crafted to be bursting with meaning. For example, the annual reenactment Passover meal was to be only for the people of God, and the lamb had to be eaten in a way where none of the bones were broken. Why? Well, God liberates his people, people not based on ethnicity, but based on people who trust and obey him. And the lamb they ate was to be fully intact, recalling the roasted lamb at the Passover event and representing a sense of unity and oneness among the people. Or the week-long festival of unleavened bread was a reminder of Israel's rushed exit out of Egypt and a commitment to purity. For the people freed from Egypt, there was no time to put leaven in the bread. They just had to grab it and they went on this six-day journey. But leaven also became a metaphor for impurity. Just like a little yeast affects an entire loaf of bread, a little sin can affect an entire person and a community. Or the dedication of the firstborn son and animals, it was meant to recall the sacrifices that served as substitutes. It would be very hard for future generations to forget that the turning point for God's liberation came through the sacrifice of lambs and the firstborn of Egypt when every time an an animal gave birth to a firstborn, that animal would be sacrificed. And every time a son was born for the first time, a lamb was killed in symbolic substitution. Life and freedom comes from death. Passover is the first time God embedded substitutionary sacrifices into the rhythm of daily, weekly, and annual life as a community, which sets the tone for an entire system of connecting with God through sacrifice. Humans can't just go straight 
to a holy God. We are imperfect and sinful. There has to be a payment, recognizing our sin and atoning for it. And through these rhythms, celebrations, and holidays, God helps generations of people to come spread an identity of being liberated through sacrifice. Now on to the third. First, Passover is a story to remember. Second, Passover is an identity to spread. But now here, third, Passover is a paradigm to anticipate. A paradigm to anticipate. God liberating his people through sacrifice wasn't just some great event to remember, but a paradigm to anticipate. From the beginning, God had promised a rescuer that would once and for all, as Genesis 3.15 says, come and bruise the head of the serpent. As the people enter the promised land, there's, there's a hope that everything's going to be right now, that God's people would finally be in God's place, finally able to freely worship and follow God. Year after year, they mostly keep the prescribed traditions and celebrations, being reminded that life comes from death, and that purity of heart and life is to be pursued. Some faithfully do this, continuing to trust God and obey him, but many walk away from God. And over time, most people's hearts grow cold and hard towards God. The years turn into centuries, and the people of God go through a whole host of stuff. Wars externally and internally, disagreement, and really lots of tradition, but without true commitment. Centuries later, the people of God find themselves under Roman rule when a man comes on the scene that is known as the one and only, and therefore oldest Son of God. He's given the name Jesus, which means God saves. But Jesus didn't talk of political revolution. Instead, he speaks of sin, the concept that all people have rebelled against God and therefore have God's punishment on them, spiritual death. Well, others began recognizing Jesus, and they refer to him, as, of all things, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus says he's come to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, a ransom is money paid to get someone out of slavery. And then on the very week of Passover, Jesus meets with his close friends and, and they share the Passover meal. But instead of having a lamb, Jesus speaks of something to come where his own body would be broken and his blood would be shed. Not even a day later, the very eldest son of God, the proclaimed lamb who came, away, who came to take away the sins of the world, is arrested. He's unfairly tried and he's executed without even a bone broken in his body. Jesus is hung on a cross and he dies. And as a Roman soldier pierces his side, the blood of his very own life flows out, ushering death. Jesus brought about a better Passover. Satan is the new Pharaoh, holding power over 
all people because of their sin. You and me and everyone in all history is Israel, spiritually in, in slavery. But Jesus is the better sacrifice. When he dies on the cross, he's both the lamb that dies so that his people could live and the firstborn son sacrificed so that his people could be set free. The cross is the moment of tragedy and triumph, punishment and payment, death and life, the meeting of God's judgment and mercy, his wrath and his love. Just like the original Passover in Exodus, the better Passover in Jesus calls all people, all people to respond. And we have a choice to make. Will we have a hard or soft heart towards God? A hard heart resists God. A soft heart receives God. A hard heart seeks to work around God's way. A soft heart seeks to pursue God's way. A hard heart endlessly searches for an identity, often within themselves. A soft heart joyfully receives an identity from God. A hard heart bends everything in life, career, friends, family, decisions, and lifestyles around itself. A soft heart bends everything in life, career, friends, family, decisions, and lifestyles around God. A hard heart needs the approval of others, therefore constantly compromising to fill that void. A soft heart has the approval of God, therefore consistently resting in fulfillment. A hard heart walks through the struggles of life, often dependent on themselves. A soft heart walks through the struggles of life, dependent on God. A hard heart thinks the best life is now. A soft heart knows that the best life is later. A hard heart says it's better to be aligned with their feelings or impulses, the ruling powers or social classes of the day, even if it means being opposed to God. A soft heart says it's better to be aligned with God even if it means opposing some of their feelings, impulses, ruling powers, and or social classes of the day. A hard heart ultimately takes on God's judgment and wrath. A soft heart ultimately passes on God's judgment and wrath to Jesus. The distinction between a hard heart and a soft heart can be seen as power. Who calls the shots in your life? Is it you? Is it someone else? Or is it God? If your heart is soft toward God, you recognize following him is a journey that needs encouragement along the way. And one of the key ways this happens is through habits and rhythms, celebrations and traditions. Recently, I asked some friends for their Easter traditions, and for most of us, we didn't really have much. Uh, we live in a time where there aren't many traditions, and the ones we have are mostly meaningless. But this presents an opportunity. One of the best ways to spread an identity is to have reoccurring traditions that are bursting with meaning. Sometimes these look like big festivals, and other times they're just very regular daily and weekly things that we do. But they say something. They communicate what's important in your life. 
They show what gets the precedent in the midst of a lot of priorities. So here's a list of ideas. Now, don't take these as legalistic, as if that God will only be happy with you if you do these. No. Instead, see them as ideas to spread your relationship with God deeper in your own life and wider to the people around you. So here are just three quick ones. Read the Bible and pray every day. One of the fixed memories I have growing up is seeing my parents reading the Bible and praying every single morning. Now, I'm sure they missed here and there, but as a kid watching, it instilled in me, without even knowing it, the priority of God's Word and communion with Him all the time. Second, the church family as precedent. Again, growing up, church activities on Sunday morning, they, they just weren't an option. Now, I didn't like that very much, especially on Sunday mornings where I had a soccer game and I had to miss that game. But now, looking back, it helped me see that being with, being with God's people was more important than sports. And then third, celebrate holidays and God-inspired events, things like Christmas and Easter. Uh, we all have an opportunity coming up this, this very week. Uh, make Easter a deal. Be a part of the service for sure, but then celebrate with friends and family if you're comfortable. Have fun. Make a great meal. Buy the best ham you can find, but build in festivities that have meaning. Talk about how we have a great king who gave his life up, but he didn't just die, but he actually rose again. That's why we celebrate. That's why we're so pumped. That's why we enjoy We've got a God that lives again, that promises that when we face death, there, there will be life on the other side. So to follow God faithfully, to sustain a soft heart towards him, we need these kinds of things that encourage us along the way, like water to a growing plant. Today we heard one of the Bible's most remarkable stories. It's a story to remember an identity to spread, and a paradigm to anticipate. God liberates his people through sacrifice. There was, and there still is, no other way. Liberation requires sacrifice. Freedom from slavery requires payment. And Jesus himself came and he paid the sacrifice for people like you and me, so that even today, in 2021, we could be free from our bondage, not a political bondage, but a spiritual one, from our own wicked hearts that trap us. The Passover is the best anthem that we can shout from the rooftops. In Christ alone, our hope is found. Freedom is here. Release has come. Liberation for all people, people from every tribe and tongue and nation, through the blood of Jesus Christ. So receive him, embrace him, orient your entire life around him, and enjoy him now and forever. Would you pray with me? God, we are so grateful that in your grace, you have sent your first and only Son to come into our world, to die on the cross for our sins, and through his death, God, you have given us a way to know you, to be freed from the certain death that we deserve, and to now live as free people with you forever. God, we 
we can't say more than thank you. Thank you for what you've done. We give you honor and praise and glory to Jesus alone. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.